So I am going to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles tonight to book of Ephesians chapter number two. Book of Ephesians chapter number two. So the last time we were in the book of Ephesians, we were studying the redemptive story of God, a.k.a. the gospel, and studying that from Ephesians chapter number two. And at the time, we started building two parallel rails for the gospel. And that is, first rail was the big picture of redemption that begins back in the book of Genesis and goes all the way through the book of Revelation. That is kind of your 30,000-foot view of redemption. It's, it's found throughout the Bible. It is this beautiful thread that goes from one side to the other. And also, we brought in a second rail, and that is the individual truths that are found in Ephesians chapter 2 that helps us better understand that redemptive story. That is more of your 30-foot view. So if you think about it, one rail of the gospel that we're dealing with is kind of just the big story of redemption. And you're going to find it through Scripture, and we're kind of given a big picture. And then in Ephesians 2, we find details to help us understand the big picture. Does that make sense? One is 30,000 foot, the other is a 30-foot view. So here's what we've covered so far. Our key truth number one is humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. That is a real one truth. You find that idea mentioned all throughout Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it gives a description to show why humanity is relationally separated from God and why it is that we are incapable of reconciling the relationship. So if you were to follow that arrow across, either on the screen or in your notes, you'll find that apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins, alive to the lust of the flesh, and by nature, children of wrath. So that is like one bracket. There is a big key truth of the redemptive story of God all through Scripture, and now some specific details that are found right there, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The second key truth that we saw is that God loved us while we were sinners and made reconciliation possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. As you can see in your notes, that is a rail one truth. That is a 30,000-foot view that you're going to see throughout Scripture. But when you get into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, there's now some details. It highlights Jesus' redemptive work of how it is that he reconciled us to himself. So, for example, in verse number 4, it describes God being rich in mercy and having a great love for us. Those are a couple of the motivating factors in this redemptive work. Then in verse number 5, it talks about how God made us alive together with Christ. Okay, that piece is essential. How did he do that? Like what part of Jesus' life, of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' death, of Jesus' resurrection, like what part of the work of Christ made that possible? I want you to hold that idea and now go back up to the very top of your notes. You're going to notice a gospel description that I've given multiple times in the past. That is the gospel is the good news that tells of God's design, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing. It is the good news that tells of God's design, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing. Three key pieces that are there. 
God's design corresponds with creation. Our created purpose is relationship with God. Then we go to sin's intrusion. That corresponds with the fall. That is how sin is introduced into this world. And then Christ's solution for human flourishing is broken down into two parts. One is redemption. That is Christ's work on the cross and what he did through the empty tomb. And then restoration. That is the sanctifying work of God that enables a person to live out their created purpose. All of those pieces are essential. Now I'm going to pause there for a moment. There's going to be a lot of pausing there for a moment as we go through this. And, And I'm going to explain a little bit of that tonight and how you're going to have to listen to this particular message. So pause there and now look on the side of rail number one and you're going to see some phrases. You're going to see those pieces put, uh, I guess, long ways on the side of rail number one. The first of those ideas corresponds with God's design and sin's intrusion. So key truth number one, it connects those two big pieces. We were created for relationship. That is our created design. That's why we've been placed here. Our sin separated us from that relationship. That is sin's intrusion and the result of what happened. It brought about separation between humanity and God. Now, the second key truth, it describes Christ's solution for human flourishing. That is what Jesus did for us. Jesus did what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross. He rose from the dead bodily three days later that we might have life. Pause. Life, death, resurrection. Each of those pieces are huge. Jesus was born. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Those are key essential pieces in the redemptive work of Christ that are now going to be described in detail over in Ephesians chapter 2. So we're seeing big truths. These are massive ones found throughout Scripture. And then there is the nuance. There are the details. There are the pieces that we're going to now study over in the book of Ephesians. Now, I need to pause here for just a moment and help you know how you need to listen to tonight's message. Listen to tonight's message in multiple segments and don't try to figure out how they all connect together. Okay, if if you're listening and you're trying to already connect that to where we're going down the road, you're going to miss the next segment and it's not going to connect. So I'm going to stop at multiple points through the evening, and I'm going to say, all right, hold that thought. If you got that, just hold it. If you understand that, now let's build another piece, and we're going to build another piece, and we're going to build another piece. And by building all of these segments together, Lord willing, by the grace of God, we're going to get to the end of tonight, and the bigger picture is going to be more clear. Now let me also say, If at the end of the night, the bigger picture is not clear, that's why we have these recorded on YouTube. Okay, you can go back and you can sit with that section like, all right, I got this piece. And Lord willing, if we take our time walking through this, we walk away with a greater understanding of the redemptive story of God. So, let's get into another part. The last time we were together, it was actually in May is the last time we were in this series. The last time we were in this series in May, I traced 
God's presence in relation to humanity from the Old Testament in the book of Genesis all the way through the Bible into the book of Revelation. Like we literally covered one side of the Bible to the other. And when I shared those different pieces, that was entirely a rail one message. We were just simply trying to get the big understanding, the big story, the redemptive story of God. The reason that is important is to understand what Jesus did. If we are to understand why Jesus' life, why his death, and why his resurrection were so important, we need to understand God's presence in relation to humanity all the way through the pages of Scripture. Now, I am not going to go back and try to tell all of that again, but I do need to give about a four to five minute synopsis for those who were not here and also for those who were here that did not understand me at all the last time. Lord willing, tonight will make a little bit more sense. So before I get into that, we're going to pause there and we're going to pray. And we're going to pray like people who don't know how this is going to work out and relying on the Holy Spirit and relying on the Word of God, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus... We are asking right now, would you connect these pieces together? God, we need you to do that. We believe your word. We believe truth. We have a desire to understand what you did on our behalf. So, Lord, in order for those connections to happen, you have to be the one to teach and to guide us tonight. May our minds be open to your truth. May the connections be clear. And, Lord, may we walk away overwhelmed, overwhelmed by what you have done for us. God, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were in the book of Ephesians, we are going to be in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I am speaking tonight on redemption and our position. Okay. So for more than 18 years, I have shared six statements about the gospel message. Every time I'm sharing these, I'll tell people, listen for the word relationship. You've heard me go through these before. Here they are. Humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. There was nothing we could do to reconcile the relationship ourselves. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus rose from the dead three days later that we might have eternal life. Jesus makes eternal life, offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. The entire story of the gospel is a story about relationship. If we miss relationship, if we miss that theme, we will not understand the significance of the story of redemption. We're not going to see how the pieces fit together. We're going to live in a religious activity state as opposed to an intimate relationship state. We are going to make it all about this is what I do for God as opposed to this is what he has done for me. We have to understand relationship. So let's now track what takes place from Genesis forward. And this is the quick version of that. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them for relationship. He was with them 
in the garden. It was a perfect environment for relationship. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no barrier between God and humanity. When Adam and Eve sinned, the relationship changed. That is, sin led to spiritual death. And spiritual death is a severing, a a separation of this relationship with God. Now, God never stopped loving Adam and Eve. But instead, the holiness of God required a separation from sin. The terminology that is often used after the fall is that of God being among his people, among his people. Now, please hear me. I am not saying for a moment there's not passage after passage. It also speaks of God being with his people. What I am saying here is with him being with his people, among his people, there is a difference now because there is this separation that now persists. There's this some barrier that has now interfered in that relationship. So while separation was clear, the people always knew that God was still among them because of the visible sign of his presence referred to as his glory. The Hebrew people called it the the cloud. They called it the, the fire. They referred to it as the Shekinah. That is, it was the visible presence of God. As they moved in the wilderness, you would see at night it was the fire guiding them. In the day, it's the cloud that was guiding them. Whenever they would go into a temple or or they dedicated a temple, the cloud of God's presence would cover this. Whenever God gave them the commands up on the mountain, that mountain was covered in the glory of God. You see this glory, 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 Shekinah all the way through. But there's this separation. There's a separate, there's the holy of holies. When you go into the, the temple itself, there was a separation between God and humanity. Even whenever the commandments were given on the mountain, God said, if anybody approaches the mountain, if they touch the mountain, they'll die. There is separation. You can only go this far. Separation between a sinful man and a holy God. We see a relational movement of God with his people. No sin and shame. Sin coming in, and he's among his people. There's a separation that is now there. Now, here's the thing. After this point, sin doesn't get better. It gets worse. In fact, it got so bad that God wiped out humanity and started over with Noah. And then it got bad again, and he wipes two entire cities off the map, Sodom and Gomorrah, because of sin. But there was always this hope. There was this hope because throughout the Old Testament, the prophet spoke of God sending a chosen individual who would save his people. The Old Testament word for this was Messiah. The New Testament term was Christos or Christ. For hundreds of years, they waited for Messiah, and sin got worse. For hundreds of years, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, calling his people to repent. And they would repent, and they would go back to sin. And they would repent, and they would go back to sin. They were caught in this vicious cycle of sin and shame that repeated. Finally, God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 10, verse 4, and said this. Then the glory of the Lord went up. The house was filled with the cloud. And the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. The picture is that of God's visible presence being lifted up above the temple. 
And then the following verses, it describes God's glory moving from the door of the temple to the east gate. And then the glory of God being lifted above the temple and moved to the mountains to the east. And then it says, and so ended the vision. That is, after thousands of years of God calling his people back into repentance, thousands of years of this, thousands of times of saying, repent, repent, repent. After that, God's visible presence goes from being with the people to among the people to now being removed from the people. Not that God is gone. Please hear, God's there. God's ever present. But that visible presence, that Shekinah, is mentioned by Ezekiel. That was 600 years before Christ. And just as suddenly as that glory lifts above the mountains to the east, we find that God comes to this man, Joseph, in the New Testament, husband of Mary. And he says, she, talking about Mary, will bear a son, and you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from there sins. Did you get that? What caused the separation before? Sin. He says, this is going to be a child born, and he's going to save them from those sins. Then it goes on to say, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. With Jesus, there is now the visible presence of God. He is with us at the birth of Christ. It marks a major transition in the relational story of God. 4,000 years of recorded history in the Old Testament shows this relational roller coaster. The visible presence of God, the Shekinah, the glory of God. It transitioned from with us in the garden, among us through much of the Old Testament, removed from us for almost 600 years, and now back with us in the birth of Christ. The glory disappeared in the eastern sky in Ezekiel's day. The glory reappears in the eastern sky with the birth of Christ. After his redemptive work, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. He ascends in the eastern sky, according to Acts chapter 1. But before he left, he gives a promise. John chapter 14, verse 17. I will send another comforter, and he will abide with you and will be in you. Are you, are you watching the transitions here? The proximity of God to humanity as it is unfolding through Scripture. Old Testament, visible presence of God was with them, among them, then separated from them. In the New Testament, God's visible presence is with us in the birth of Christ. And after the ascension, God is with us and in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer and it does not get any closer in a relationship relationship than the Spirit of God being in us. Okay, that is what the book of Ephesians is pointing back to. It is you and I are in Christ, and he is in us. That is position. If we miss that piece, 
We're going to miss this sanctifying work of God. We're going to miss the pathway to victory. We're going to miss so much of what God has for us. So now I want us to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. You all have made it this far. You've done great. All right, here it is. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We need to pray. God, oh, would you please unlock this? Please unlock this. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is key truth number three that's in your notes. At salvation, we are united with Christ, and our position is permanently changed according to God's great and gracious purposes. At salvation, we are united with Christ, and our position is permanently changed according to God's great and gracious purposes. That is rail one. That is 30,000 foot view. All right. So let me ask you, have you ever tried to create a word to describe something that you're trying to get your mind around because you couldn't figure out another word that would fit? It's like the, it, it, there's words out there, but the words don't quite fit the way they're supposed to. Probably one of the best examples of this was back in 1754, a guy by the name of Horace Walpole. Um, he coined the term serendipity, and he defined it as making happy and unexpected discoveries by accident. It's more than just being happy. It was more than a discovery. It was more than something being unexpected. It was a combination of multiple things coming together, and he created this word that is serendipitous, that is serendipitous, that is a word that was created in order to describe something that there was not yet a term for it. The Apostle Paul did the exact same thing three times in verses five and six. Three times he creates a word. He coins his own phrases here. There are three unique terms that the Apostle Paul created because words could not describe the fullness of what God has done on our behalf. And remember, he is describing this radical change that has happened in our lives and in our character and in our spiritual disposition. And because of our future, all as a result of what God has done for us. God's grace to us was so good. God's favor on us was so overwhelming. God's activity in our lives was so over the top that the Apostle Paul is like, I, I don't even have words to describe this. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let's put some of these together. Before Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sin. But now we have been made alive together with Christ. Before Christ, we were enslaved by our sins and bound by our old nature. But now we are forgiven of our sins and given a brand new nature in Christ. But before Christ, we were objects of God's wrath under God's punishment. But now we are trophies of grace and we are recipients of God's incredible love. 
How do you describe that to someone? How can, you, how can you get words around that when somebody says, what happened in your life? Where do I begin? What do I say? It's, it's more than saying, I've been changed. Well, yes, that's part of it, but how, how were you changed? What changed? It's more than saying, I have a new future. You do. But prior to Christ, you had no future at all. It's more than saying he loved me when I was unlovable. It's more than saying he gave me favor. It's more than saying God's been good to me. It's like how do you get your mind around the redemptive work of God to describe the fullness of what he has done on our behalf? The apostle Paul said there's not words for that. We're going to have to create some. So here's what he does. Since words could not adequately describe it, he took the Greek prefix sin, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N, meaning together with. And he combined it with three words that are used elsewhere to describe what God did with Jesus after the crucifixion. Those three words were make alive, raise up, sit down. Make alive, raise up, sit down. Christ's redemptive work brought three big changes. That is, to make alive together with. To raise up together with. To sit down together with. Taken together, these words make one of the most complete and significant statements about what Christ did for us at salvation as a result of our new union with Christ that is based solely upon God's grace. We were not just raised from the dead and left in the cemetery. We have been raised from the dead and seated in Christ in the heavenlies. That's a whole different story. To get what's happening here, we're going to have to go to another passage. I know y'all are excited about this, so turn over, if you would, Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Galatians 2, 19 through 21. It describes our union with Christ and our position in Christ. And as we read this text, I want you to notice each time life and death are mentioned all the way through. This is important. We're going to see all the connections in a moment. Verse number 19. It says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Death, life, each one mentioned in that verse. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, death. It's no longer I who live life, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who gave, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Do you see how many times it mentions life and death, life and death, all the way through? It is critical. It is important. It is essential for a believer to not only know, but to embrace the truth 
that the old you was crucified with Jesus on the cross. You're like, I don't even know what that means. But it's a good thing we got the word of God to help us understand. I'm going to give you another passage. Write it off to the side. Romans 7, 1 1 and 4. It helps us understand why death, our dying, our being crucified with Christ on the, the cross, why that is so critical. Here's what it says. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. You get what it's going? The law, the very thing that condemned us to death, the very thing that we were guilty of before a holy God, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. If someone is convicted of a crime and they're put to death, the law has no more claim over them after death. Even if that person were to get back up from the dead five minutes later, the law has no jurisdiction because the penalty had been paid in full. That individual would now be guiltless in a new life because the penalty had fully been paid. Did you and I trespass the law of God? Were we guilty against the law of God? Yes. What was the punishment for our sin? Death. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. When we were born into this world, at our physical birth, Adam's sin was imputed to us at our physical birth. But when you and I repented of our sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're born again. Your physical birth, you're under Adam. He's the federal head. You're born again, spiritual birth. Now it is the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you. Those who are born again, they have a new nature. They are now under a new federal head who is Christ. They are no longer under the law. The jurisdiction of the law does not have them. They're now under grace. (laughs) I'm about to split up here because if people are still trying to say, well, you know, it's just the old me. I'm just, I'm just battling it out. It, you know, these are things I'm just going to be dealing with for the rest of my life. It is not an understanding of the gospel. If they miss that part, then we're focused on things we should not be focused on. We're, we're focused on things that he's already freed us from. It would be like somebody spending hours and days and weeks studying for an exam that they've already got a hundred on. And they're like, I just gotta gotta plow my way through it. They're like, you've already passed, you got a hundred. No, I keep gotta, I gotta work for this. You're you're past, you're out, you're on the other side, the degree's in your hand, but I still gotta. No, you don't. Let him do the work. 
He's been the one who has redeemed us. He's the one who has saved us. He is the one that has now positioned us in Christ. It's no longer about what we might be able to do in our strength. Our good was never good enough prior to the cross. And our good is not good enough after the cross. It has to be the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ that is made clear in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. It's it. So notice the first part of key truth three. At salvation, we are united with Christ. Together with Christ. Union with Christ. Look at the three words. He describes the experience. Made alive together with Christ. Raised up together with Christ. Sit down together with Christ. We are in such union with Christ and identified with him, but listen, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's how deep this union goes. Our life is now solely found in him. He is our life, Colossians 3, 4. It's in him that we live and move and have our being, Acts 17. We are so identified with Christ that we were baptized into his death, Romans 6.3. Buried with him, Romans 6.4. United with him, Romans 6.5. Crucified with him, Romans 6.6. 6. Died with him, Romans 6, eight, So that we can live with him, Romans 6.8. Our union with Christ establishes our position in Christ. To go back to the law after you have been redeemed, is you just wander back into the cemetery after he has made you alive together in Christ. It is to put yourself under a yoke that he did not intend for you. We are now yoked to Christ, not to the law. It is crucial for believers to understand their identity in Christ and their position in Christ. If not, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to polish up, clean up, justify, and sanctify the very thing he put to death on the cross. So, because we are united with Christ, we have his life, we have his nature. We are united with Christ, we are positioned in him. Verse 6 it says, God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He seated us with him. Our physical position may still be on this earth. Our spiritual position is already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In fact, that phrase for seated, it's in the aorist tense in the Greek. It emphasizes the absoluteness of the promise by speaking of it as though it is already completely fulfilled and taking place. Amen. He has seated us. It is done. It is finished. The phrase, so that, or in order that, indicates the purpose of our union in Christ. Why are we positioned where we're at? Why did God do it? Look at what it says in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is no doubt 
that you and I are beneficiaries of salvation and what he has done for us. But please hear me. His primary purpose in redeeming us was not to keep us out of hell. His primary purpose in redeeming us was for his glory. To point eyes back to him. In other words, he did it so that the surpassing greatness of his riches, his grace, his kindness would be seen for the ages to come. Oh, go write this passage off to the side. We got all sorts of passages tonight. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. Listen to what it says. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did it so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. (laughs) He's basically saying, why did he do it? What's the purpose? When somebody says, he did it because I was worth it, or he did it because he saw something in me. That's not his primary reason. He did it for his glory. He did it so that Throughout the ages, people would say, I don't understand it. I I can't fathom this mercy. I I don't understand how a holy God could be sinned against and rebelled against and cursed by his own creation. And how that same God would go out of his way to send his son to die a cruel death, to be raised in victorious life, to redeem people who didn't even want it, who were in rebellion against him, who were spiritually dead. Why did it happen? For his glory, for his glory. So the people would say, it's got nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. It's not about us. Our our worship is not, oh God, thank you so much for this. I'm worthy of this. I'm worthy. No, we're not. We're not. It's he alone who is worthy. It's for his glory that he has done this. In fact, Revelation chapter 7, verses 10 through 12, it tells us that one day all of heaven will glorify him. Because of what he has done for us. When the fullness of the exchanged life begins to sink into a person's spirit, it changes the way we look at things. When you understand what God has done for you, it grieves your heart when you hear Christians walking in defeat. When you hear Christians say things like, I'll just never be able to get it together. When Christians adopt a victimhood mentality. When when Christians feel as though it is up to them to somehow do something to earn God's favor, to stay in God's good graces, and they're walking with weight day after day. It grieves your heart because you're saying, you don't understand what God's done. You're you're missing the gospel here. You're missing the message of freedom. So I want you to hear what it is that Christ has done for us. Because of his redemptive work, we are children of God, 
John chapter 1. We are Christ's friend, John 15. We are a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. We are a saint, Ephesians chapter 1. We are righteous and we are holy, Ephesians chapter 4. We are dearly loved by God, Colossians chapter 3. We are more than conquerors through Christ, of Romans chapter 8. That is just a smattering of our new identity as a result of union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ is so big, the Apostle Paul stresses it 164 times in his writings. He says, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in Jesus, that is our position and that's where our possessions are at. It's in Christ. Paul teaches the fullness of this. We're chosen in him, Ephesians 1.4. Redeemed in him, Ephesians 1.7. Justified in him, Galatians 2.17. Sanctified in him, 1 Corinthians 1.2. And complete in him, Colossians 2.5. John Murray once wrote, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Arthur Pink said, the subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and yet the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred scripture. But then he goes on to say, sadly, the very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing Christian circles. And even where it is employed, it is giving such a protracted meaning as to take in only a fragment of these precious truths. I could not agree more. One of the reasons I am so passionate about the gospel and about discipleship is because I was a pastor for almost four years before anyone introduced union with Christ to me. I spent so much time in my Christian life trying to live up to a standard I could never reach and feeling defeated every day because of it. I felt like I could never do enough to please God, to earn this position. People would say things like, God gave his life for you. The least you could do is live your life for him. And it placed a burden on top of me because I wanted to do things right. But I, I didn't know how, I, I didn't know what, I didn't understand. But when somebody introduced me to union in Christ, they introduced me to my position in Christ, the exchanged life, the Christ life, the surrendered life. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. When that happened, all I could say is I experienced life. I found joy. I found freedom. There was, there was excitement that was restored to my walk with God. One of the primary reasons why I wrote this is the gospel 
is because I kept trying to find follow-up material for brand new believers that emphasize gospel truths like union with Christ and identification in Christ and position in Christ, and I couldn't find them anywhere. Every piece of follow-up material that I was running into gave the religious laundry list of here's now what you need to do. It didn't start with this is who you are. It said this is what you need to do. But if I don't understand who I am in Christ, I will instinctively go back to works-based righteousness. But if I understand who I am, if I understand this is about me being in him and him being in me, and all of the actions are to overflow out of that intimate relationship, it changes everything. One of the reasons why we are passionate about going and sharing and teaching in other churches and going to other countries and teaching other pastors is I cannot tell you how many times I'm sitting in churches and talking to pastors and they're saying, no one ever taught me this. That is an indictment on the church of Jesus Christ when the pastors who are leading churches have not been introduced to the basic truths of the gospel. How do we expect there to be lives living in victory in the pews when the pastors are saying, no one ever taught me these things? So you know what we do? We go to pastor after pastor, church after church, leadership conference after leadership conference, and we keep saying, here's the gospel. This is what Jesus has done. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's resources to help you understand it. And when you see the light bulbs go off and all of a sudden pastors are walking in victory, that means if you can impact the leader, you can impact everybody that they are impacting in that ministry. It is a win for the kingdom of God. But if we don't know the word, we just kind of come back to church next Sunday and we're like, we're going to do the best we can. I got a 20, let me throw that in the offering plate. Maybe that will make God happy for this next week. I read the Bible two out of seven days. That's maybe a C. Like we compare ourselves to the wrong things. We're focused on the wrong things. When you know who you are in Christ, it will free you up to walk in victory. Identification and position. And we are just getting into this. So I'm going to let you all think on those things in this next week. And we're going to come back next Sunday, Lord willing, by the grace of God. And we're going to go a little bit further. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that is in Christ. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>